This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Bren. Today, we explore the alternative education providers that have emerged in the aftermath of the 2021 coup in Myanmar. My guest is James, a representative of Spring University Myanmar. SUM has recently published a report entitled Higher Education in Post-Coup Myanmar. It all started in the February of 2021. It happened right after the um, nationwide election that happened in 2020. The democratically elected government was overthrown by the military hunter and the military uh, stage and coup saying there were some um, election frauds. So they detained all the government officials, ministers, the parliament members and the activists who did not side with them. In order to protect James, I've agreed not to use his name or his photo, but please do check out the report. James, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hello, Will. Thank you for having me here. It's really great to have you on the show to talk about your university and what's going on in Myanmar today. So I guess to start, could you just sort of explain to the listeners who might not know too much about what's been going on in Myanmar, could you give a recap of the 2021 coup in Myanmar. What happened then? It all started in the February of 2021. It happened right after the um, nationwide election that happened in 2020. The democratically elected government was overthrown by the military hunter and the military uh, stage and coup saying there were some um, election frauds. So they detained all the government officials, ministers, the parliament members, and the activists who did not side with them. So the public and did not like it. So the people um, did the demonstrations and protests all over the country. They, the roads were full of the people, you know, with a chance to prevail the democracy. And then the military cracked down all the protests with force and killed thousands of people you know, that were against them. So we called it the Spring Revolution. And it is still happening all over the country from the soft strikes. It also led to the nationwide um, armed resistance. And it all has been chaos in the country. For over the last two years, you're saying that the coup happened and it sort of inspired this spring revolution that then morphed into armed resistance in some cases, protest movements that still go on, striking that still goes on. But the military is still in power. Is that correct? Yes, and that's correct. The military is still in power, but they cannot control every part of the country anymore. Uh, they can just take control of the big cities like Yangon, Madalay, and Nabil. But for the other uh, cities and states and regions, it all has been taken back by the resistant forces and the ethnic armed groups. Yes. Wow. Okay. So the country itself is, as you said, in, in a bit of chaos and thinking about what's going on in education and in higher education in the country is actually going to be pretty hard, isn't it? Because it must look so different in different parts of the country. The education landscape has been different since the coup. Especially if we look into the higher education sector, um, there are a lot of stakeholders emerge in the form of resistance to the illegitimate military hunter. We can say there are a lot of stakeholders, 
such as the interim education providers, such as the online education providers, and interim university councils and the student unions. And there are also the ethnic education departments, which got even stronger right after the coup. And also we have the community-led initiative that are that have been offering a lot of education programs, like the former informal technical vocational to the students in the conflict areas. So it has been really diverse. The landscape has been really interesting to look into, and it has been a really unique thing to look at if we would like to consider the higher education in Myanmar. We'll, we'll dive into some of those different, let's call them providers of higher education, because it is so interesting that there's just this plethora of providers in this moment of conflict and chaos. But maybe we should go back to in the aftermath of the coup and just sort of could you tell us about what happened inside the system of education and, and in particular higher education? What happened when the coup, you know, took place and in the, the months after the coup when the spring revolution sort of blossomed? What happened in, in education? All right. So as you might have seen in the news that the about the world civil disobedience movement in Myanmar. Uh, right after the coup. So a lot of civil, I mean, not a lot of the majority of the civil servants and the professors and also the administration staff from various government departments and also the universities joined the civil disobedience movement with a mission of, you know, urging the military to go back to the barracks and to show their resistance in the best of their capability. Basically, the civil disobedience movement was all about you know, not willing to walk under the military rule, and also the people don't want to let the military regime operate. So it's like um, showing the people's power to the regime, like the soft power of, you know, um, the civil disobedience movement really affect the military regime not to operate um, effectively, efficiently um, after the coup. So about 80% of the university um, professors and staff joined the civil disobedience movement and they got dismissed from the university because you know they joined the civil disobedience movement and they don't want to work under the military regime and then those professors like those dismissed professors and the youth groups and the the people that are interested in the education they come together and form a lot of um, interim education providers to support the interim alternative education. So I'll try and recap. So basically what you're saying is that after the coup happened, there was this civil disobedient movement that sort of took place. And a lot of the people who joined that movement were staff and students and faculty at universities. And then they were subsequently dismissed from their universities for participating in the civil disobedience movement. So then this these sort of excluded individuals came together and started coming up with alternative forms of education. Yeah, that's correct. That is quite amazing. So let's dig into some of these. So maybe, you know, one of the first ones you talked about were the interim education. So IEPs, you know, what is an IEP? What do they look like? What do they do? Who's enrolling in them? So when we talk about the interim education providers, there are a lot of, you know, components right after that. So we can include the online education platforms, such as the Spring University Myanmar. And there are also the interim university concepts, which is a parallel form of the university. 
of the military-run universities and schools. So they, those were led by the dismissed professors and the students' unions. And for the online education providers, there are a lot of, you know, non-state education organizations. Uh, we can include Spring University Myanmar, Burma Academy, and a lot of other education providers in this category. So they have been offering a lot of courses in different disciplines, such as social science, technical vocational, STEM courses, and applied sciences, and also, you know, uh, federalism, peace, and um, college preparation courses uh, to the students. And the students have been, you know, really active in taking uh, the courses at those um, online education providers. So it has been really, you know, um, supported by the students and also the dismissed professors and also the public. It's quite amazing that these sort of options emerged so quickly. I guess the online element was quite helpful, but raises some questions like, you know, why are the students going to the university like, or to these online providers, these interim education providers? Are they able to provide any sort of qualification or certificate of, you know, a diploma as if you graduated a university? Like, can they do that? We'll have to divide this uh, question into two parts. So the first thing that I would like to to focus on is that um, the students, you know, and that joined the civil disobedience movement uh, attended those online courses at the interim education providers. They they got the certificates from those institutes like certificate of certificate in blah 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 and diploma in blah blah blah. And these are not really accredited by anybody, but these are supported by the national unity government. That the national unity government. But the students did not, you know, wish for any accreditation in the first year of the coup. But they started to um, ask for that in the second year of the coup because, you know, and it has been long and the uh, CDM students have to continue their education. So it, it has been there. It has been that those, uh, there have been those um, requests from the students. So in the first stage, the students would like to just, you know, continue their education, but did not ask for the certification. But in the later years, they started asking for that. So this is one thing. The second thing is that those edu interim education providers uh, collaborated with some other um, institutes from the other countries, such as the United States or the countries in the Europe. So it's just a project-based um, certification accreditation. If I have to say for Spring University Myanmar, SUM has been hosting some joint collaboration projects with a lot of universities, such as uh, the universities in the United States, and also one university from New Zealand, Victoria University of Wellington. So we collaborated those um, academic projects and the students with, who enrolled in those courses and completed in those courses got the certification from those universities as well. So it has been a motivation for them. It also has been a motivation for the education providers to keep working as well. So the situation is like that, if I have to say, yeah. It's so fascinating because as you said the coup has gone on for so long now that it's almost like these alternative systems that emerged immediately after the coup that maybe people thought were going to just be temporary are now institutionalizing and they they have to sort of continue to exist for quite a long time 
And then so questions like accreditation or diplomas, certification, all of these questions start arising that might not have happened in the beginning. Another big issue that I keep thinking about is funding, right? How do some of these alternative education providers fund themselves when they're sort of operating outside of the state system? Right. They're operating outside of any national body that would allow, I would imagine, bank accounts. And, you know, I would imagine it can be quite complicated. So how does the funding work for some of these alternative education providers? To answer this question, I think uh, we'll have to go back to the higher education reform that started from 2012. So there has been a really good process of um, higher education reform. And that could happen and hit, you know, all the progress has to stop. But if I'm not wrong, the universities and the education ministry has been, had been trying to give autonomy to the universities in the, in the country. It has not happened yet, but most of the universities has been planning to do that. After the coup, it all stopped. But with the emergence of the interim university councils and also the non-state department, non-state education institutes such as the online education providers, they have the autonomy to operate their own universities or education platforms. So they have the financial independence and they have to work on that on their own. So it is really been complicated, as you say, and it's not really easy and tax for each interim education providers as well. So there are some institutes that have been uh, collecting some amount of fees for the courses that the students enrolled, but there are also institutes and platforms that have been offering free courses to the students, you know, just as just for them to continue their education. And the situation is like that, but each institution's financial dependency is different. Some got development and funding from the international organizations and some do the crowdfunding with the public. So it is really diverse, but and also it has been really complicated to survive amidst this crisis. And is the military government trying to crack down on some of that sort of international assistance to these different education providers? Well, yes, they have been, you know, disturbing um, that the processes so that the bank accounts of the um, individuals that are working at those um, interim education providers got blocked by the military, you know, making them difficult to make the transactions. So it has been really worse and worse uh, day by day. But interim education provider has have been, you know, finding lots of other ways to overcome that. So complicated, but they, they, they have been, yeah, they're creative. They have been trying to creative and to, to overcome those barriers. That's why I always love talking about sort of alternatives in the face of state resistance. It's always rather creative. What about students that are participating in these different educational provision providers? Is it safe for them to do so? So, um, is not safe for them to join the, you know, um, platforms that are against the military. So they have to use the alliance name to join those courses. They cannot use their personal email addresses to enroll in those courses, but the secondary, you know, email addresses to enroll in those platforms. And also, you know, the in-class Operation has been really difficult for the schools and also for the students to you know, get in because um, most of the education uh, providers 
uh, do not allow the students to you know turn on their camera while 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 learning and also to the teachers as well because you know and they they would like to um set up the security measures uh, to avoid any unnecessary risk. So it has been like that. It has not been safe for the students. Um, really. But it also sounds like that the online provision is enabling students to be safer than they would otherwise have been. Yeah, that's true. Education actors have been trying really hard not to put any risks on the students and also for their staff and teachers as well. So are there any sort of face-to-face alternative education provision happening? Like, So the online system, I can understand how that sort of evades the military rule and allows students to keep learning and all these sort of interesting alternative spaces. But what about sort of traditional face-to-face teaching? Is that happening in sort of this alternative world? Yeah, it's really happening in some parts of the country. Like, as I said in the start of this podcast, there are the ethnic education colleges and departments that have been operating in some areas such as the Garan State, Garani State, and Chen State, Gachin State, and also in uh, some other areas as well. So uh, the ethnic education departments have existed uh, since before the coup, but they have been getting stronger after the coup. You know, there there are no other alternatives um for for the students in the rural rural ethnic areas. So they have been trying harder, and they have been getting stronger and stronger. And also, there are the community initiatives in the Gulflet areas as well, mostly in the central part of the country, such as Sakai, Makui, and Mandalay. They have been for the ethnic education departments, most of them have been offering the diploma programs and also there are, there are the technical and vocational trainings as well to equip the students with the real life skills and experience to work, you know, to, to continue working. So, um, and also there have been some universities that emerged after the coup. Uh, for example, there is one university called Gachin State Comprehensive University, GSCU, which is newly established university that, uh, that has been, you know, that, that is based in Gachin State, which is the northern part of the country, Myanmar. And also there are some other colleges in the uh, Gara and Granny State as well. So they have been offering associate degrees or the diploma programs to, as the post-secondary education to the students. So this is about the ethnic education uh, department as a college. But for the community initiatives, they have been delivering the technical and vocational courses mostly. But they are also planning to, you know, step into the more former education programs uh, for the students as well. Gosh, it's so complicated. So it's fascinating to think that there are these ethnic education departments, which were sort of government departments that existed before the coup. And after the coup, they continue to exist, but they sort of have, it sounds like what you're saying is they have a bit more autonomy to do what they want to do and not have to really think about, you know, the main government, the national government, or in this case, the military. And they sort of can just, as you said, they're getting stronger and stronger. So does that mean that they're, they're, they're having more autonomy to sort of develop educational provision as they see fit? Let me correct you. The ethnic education departments that existed before the coup were not under the control of the government. They were under, they have been under the administration of the ethnic organizations. It is separate from the main government. It is controlled by the ethnic organizations.
So, okay, so these weren't necessarily connected to the government originally, and they're certainly now not connected to the military government. Um, so in what ways are they getting stronger? All right. So um, before the coup, some institutes were standalone organizations, but right after the coup, with the resistance and the uh, revolution towards the military regime, um, a lot of stakeholders have come together to, you know, form alternative education platforms, and this include the education, ethnic education department as well. So, there are more human resources that would like to contribute to the ethnic education departments, and also from the international aid organizations as well. So, um, the conflicts got stronger, and also the resistance have have also been stronger as well. And then these community sort of initiatives that emerged, as you were saying, do these ever sort of come into conflict with some of the other educational providers that have also emerged, right? Like, so for instance, is there community initiatives that are sort of separate from and sort of in contestation with the ethnic education departments? Like, does that happen? Like, is it like in a province... Is there such complexity of the sort of educational services that some of the community initiatives are actually very different from what the education, ethnic education department is offering? So there are there are some areas that the community initiatives and the ethnic education colleges coexist together, but the services, the education services that they provide are different. So as far as I have known, the community initiatives have mostly been offering the vocational skills training to the students while the ethnic education departments offer the um, associate degree or the diploma programs. Right. Okay. So they're not necessarily competing with each other. They're sort of providing different options. Yes, that's true. And also there are some cases that they collaborate together to, you know, provide the opportunities for the students. And do any of the online spaces that emerge, do they also collaborate with these other sort of in-person spaces, the community initiatives or the ethnic education departments? Yes, um, there are a lot of collaborations happening between them and that the other online education providers have also been collaborating with the community initiatives to, you know, have more impact on the uh, grassroots level. For example, Spring University Myanmar has also been collaborating with a lot of ethnic education departments and also with the community initiatives to, you know, um, offer some programs. Actually, Spring University has been um, offering a hybrid style diploma in, in an integrated area in collaboration with one community initiative. There's this idea in education called shadow education. Usually it's referred to private tutoring that happens alongside what we call mainstream schooling. But it sounds like in Myanmar today, shadow education is this like massive system because there is this conflict going on. I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating sort of sight to, to sort of explore new meanings of shadow education. But I guess, you know, from someone who has, you know, you work with an online university, the, the university has started putting out some reports that have looked at all of these alternative education providers and trying to just map what this looks like because it's so complex and it's changing because of the situation and because of the sort of chaos and the conflict. What do you think some of the implications are of this system that you are sort of documenting and mapping? I mean, let's just look back to the past two years. It has been really great. Among all those, you know, limitations, constraints, and the conflicts happening around the country, alternative education programs has have 
survive really well, you know, and the progress has been really in mass. When we look at the uh, military-run universities, there are, you know, lesser students. I mean, there are only a few amounts of students that are attending those uh, courses, and the certification and graduation cannot be certified by any accreditation body or any stakeholder. It's just the certificate that has been issued by the military government. So the international universities trying to, you know, neglect and neglect those certificates as well. One that is happening, you know, in the military side, you know, with the fewer amounts of teachers and qualifications, the alternative education programs have been trying hard to get the accreditation from the different stakeholders, like the ethnic education departments are also um, mobilizing their students and teachers to, you know, have the quality education. They have also been encouraging the freedom of education while the students in at the military-run university have not permitted about it. You know, they will just arrest the students if they say about the federalism or the democracy or anything that is related to coup. But the students on the other side, you know, the students at the alternative education programs can just uh, freely discuss what they think of and it has been encouraged by every single institute and individual. So that thing alone is really uh, different from the military-run institutes. And the the teachers and the students have been really motivated to um, change the system of the education, uh, you know, that uh, we got between 2015 and 2020. So the students and teachers and also the institutes were continue to fight against the, you know, uh, limitation and the hunter and the military ran ideologies. So it has been really great. And I think it will, you know, continue to, you know, be stronger and stronger. You know, what, looking at all of these different alternative education providers, it's quite amazing that they exist and that they're collaborating and that they're getting international support and that students are going. And it almost sounds like some of them are trying to institutionalize and trying to think, okay, now that we're going to actually have to be here for a while because the military is still in power and we're not sure what's going to happen in the future, you know, we now have to make sure that these different institutions can sort of continue to exist. And so in that environment, do you think these alternatives are going to be sort of part of the education system in Myanmar going forward for, you know, for the foreseeable future? Um, I believe those alternative platforms will continue to exist in the future as well. I mean, in the foreseeable future, that there are a lot of students and youth that require, you know, continuous education. So I believe those, you know, different education stakeholders such as online education providers, ethnic education departments, community initiatives, they will strive to continue for the sake of students. Well, James, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and telling me all about alternative education providers and about Spring University of Myanmar. You know, good luck with this sort of alternative education provision and keep me posted and keep us posted with what goes on in Myanmar. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. James is a representative of Spring University Myanmar. SUM's new report is entitled Higher Education in Post-Coup Myanmar. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. 
Freshhead's team includes Fati Octus, Obafemi Ngunle, Annabella Afrobotang, Phyllis Chain Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.